Hi folks, Mike Howie here. Before we get into this week's episodes, I want to let you know they're both about domestic violence in pets. We talk about some upsetting information in order to shed light on the real-life experiences of far too many people. This episode may be difficult to listen to, and if it is, please don't push yourself. If you're looking for resources regarding domestic violence, you can visit endingviolencecanada.org or ncadv.org. If you are in immediate need of help, please call 911 or your local emergency services. More links are available in the show notes. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Don't worry if you've already heard this. There's two episodes this week, and both have the same first 30 seconds or so. I struggled with how to write the introduction to these two episodes. Domestic violence and the connection to pets is a subject I've long wanted to discuss. And now that I've completed two interviews... I'm not sure how to go about talking about it. The unsettling truth is that there is a link between domestic violence and pets. That too often, people have not left dangerous situations due to fear for their beloved pets, or because there aren't options for them to leave with their pets. I spoke with the Urban Resource Institute in New York and Parachutes for Pets in Calgary. The former is a larger organization that offers an array of services, including victim services, legal services, safety planning, shelter space, and homes for families and individuals and more. The latter is a grassroots group creating much-needed community supports for pet families, including specific supports in relation to poverty, social upheaval, and domestic violence. The original plan was to have one large episode. But each of these conversations deserve their own space, and that's why you have two episodes in your feed this week, 813 Part 1 and Part 2. Urban Resource Institute, America's largest domestic violence residential service provider and the National Domestic Violence Hotline, recently released the results of their national survey. The PAL survey, part of the URI's People and Animals Living Safely program, clearly showed the fear for safety of pets is a critical component in a person's decision in leaving abusive situations. The findings are staggering, with 97% of respondents saying that keeping their pets is an important factor in deciding to seek shelter, and 50% saying they would not consider shelter for themselves if they could not take their pets with them. To discuss the important findings in this survey, I was joined by Danielle Emery, URI's Director of People and Animals Living Safely Program. Before we start talking about the report that was conducted by the Urban Resource Institute and the National Domestic Hotline, uh, Domestic Violence Hotline, I want to talk about what domestic violence is because I believe there can be some misunderstandings. And I think when you hear the phrase domestic violence, some folks, uh, myself included, uh, when I first started learning about this stuff, you get a very specific mm -hmm. picture in your mind of what that is. So before we delve into the, the subject matter at hand, uh, could, we talk, could you tell us a little bit about what domestic violence entails and all the different ways it can appear? Yeah, I think that that common image, that it's a really common experience for people to have that image in their head. And what we and research has found over the past few decades is that 
domestic violence goes across socioeconomic lines, race lines, gender lines. Um, it's really, you know, it's an issue that impacts everyone. And it's not, it's, you know, you tend to, anyone you meet, um, is, if they don't have their own personal experience, they have family connections, they have someone who they're close to who is a survivor of domestic violence, it, it permeates society, all, all parts of society. Uh, in the United States, nearly 20 people per minute are physically assaulted by an intimate partner. So that's more than 10 million individuals each year. Uh, and that's only physical assault. And then you can also factor in psychological abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse. Uh, and you think about, you know, how the animal welfare fits into that and how, you know, animals um, can be used as part of that manipulation uh, or to uh, intimidate or coerce uh, survivors into certain behaviors um, because of that emotional and psychological connection. Yeah, it is a wide ranging problem. And as you, you mentioned, that's a, an awful lot of people being impacted by this uh, on a very, very regular basis. And I have heard, I do not know if there are any confirmed reports of this, that as the pandemic unfolded and as stay-at-home orders, uh, for example, here in Ontario where I am, we have been under what I have been told is the longest series of lockdowns in the world mm -hmm. uh, as a result of the, the pandemic. And mental health has declined and the potential rate of abuse has likely gone up a great bit. Um, I think it was yeah. even in this report I read that, um, and it could have been another one, that with children not in school, that's often how some of this abuse is first identified is Absolutely. because they're out of the home. Yes, with teachers as mandated reporters. And, and I think how it, for domestic violence, you know, a lot of how people get service, services, access, help through hotlines or resource centers is, you know, other opportunities that they get to get out of the house, to go to their jobs, to go grocery shopping, to go socialize, to see friends and family who may notice, you know, you're behaving differently or notice that there's something, you know, just that seems different about um, you or they may notice an injury. And, and when people's... Um, you know, when those social networks aren't as active, uh, there's definitely less opportunity for people to notice um, and to be able to seek help, outside help. So we found in New York City that the there was, it's interesting, um, the number of telephone hotline calls actually was not higher at the start of COVID, but things like uh, text and chat became much more common because people were isolated at home with their abusers. And so they were not able to safely make a phone call. And so COVID actually... Uh, I think was a, a igniter of a lot of domestic violence providers realizing that they needed to develop their chat and text services for folks. Yeah, and in your field, uh, managing these situations, it, there has always been sort of a, a need to be ahead of the curve mm -hmm. in terms of what is publicly known um, and what can be done I, I recall, again, in my time as a journalist, uh, trying to reach out to um, uh, a social service that dealt with folks uh, trying to escape domestic violence. And just agreeing on a location for the interview required me to sign an NDA ahead of time mm -hmm. and have a very serious conversation with them about, like, we need to be able to be sure that you are not going to provide information that may get out. On the URI website, um, there is a, a great feature, and I've seen this elsewhere, and it's an escape button mm -hmm. in the corner of the web browser. Yep. So if you're on the web and someone comes up, you click that, it wipes that website and opens up a new tab. Right. Um, and it's, you know, like, it's the stuff you, you don't want to acknowledge necessarily is necessary. Mm -hmm. 
but very much is. Um, and that also is one of the reasons it can be so hard for folks to get away from these situations. Correct. And, and safety planning is a huge part of what we and what all hotline or DB service providers do with uh, survivors. So it's recognizing, um, you know, that survivors are, you know, they know their situation the best and they know how to keep themselves safe. And so we really follow their lead about when they're comfortable making phone calls or not making phone calls, if they want to be chatting, if they are comfortable coming in person or not coming in person. So really following their lead on what works for them and how they know to keep themselves saved. Um, they're the, the experts in their own in their own life and their own situation. And so yeah. following following that lead. And, and I think pets also are a part of that too, of, of following that lead if someone is telling you that pets are an important part of their safety planning uh, for advocates and hotline workers to hear that survivors are saying that uh, and the importance of programs that can assist those people. Absolutely. And uh, working our way over to the survey, which is kind of the, the, the basis for this conversation, that was done, as we said, in partnership with the Domestic Violence Hotline, uh, which is referred to as the hotline. Um, and I guess one of the things I find interesting in reading both the executive summary and the full report is you weren't necessarily looking for new information. It was mm -hmm. trying to maybe get more current information, I guess. Is that what the... the the foundation of doing the survey was? I think more current information and then also a broader picture. So a lot of the research and stats that have existed to date have been on a much smaller scale uh, and usually are asking survivors who've already entered domestic violence shelter um, about their pets. And so we were looking to hear from people who were contacting the hotline, you know, while they were in that moment of crisis, while they were in maybe still in that abusive situation and looking for services to hear from them in that moment to get a sense of, you know, of that population, which is much larger than the size of the population that ultimately would enter shelter. What are their needs? What are they saying about their pets and the importance of the pets um, in their healing and their and staying, ability to stay safe? And, and how can we, uh, you know, increase the number of resources and the access to information and, uh, you know, safe places for people to go with their pets. Um, and I, I'll ask, uh, I'll, I'll just sort of turn it over to you. I've got the key findings up and they are heartbreaking to me to look at um, and really speak to need. What were the results what you expected or was it information that maybe was surprising? What, what was the, uh, you know, the well, the key takeaways, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that the the results were surprising. Um, working with uh, survivors on a daily basis, um, we have more than fifty families in our program currently. Um, we've had over three hundred families and more than four hundred pets uh, in our shelters. And you know what we know is that accessing safety is very important. But what is also important is that emotional connection and being able to stay with their pets as they are recovering from uh, this traumatic situation. And so for me, you know, hearing that 97% of respondents said that keeping their pets with them is an important factor in deciding whether or not to seek shelter, mm -hmm. it's not surprising necessarily, but I think to, you know, hear it from more than, you know, close to 2,500 people that that is an important factor is uh, very powerful. Um, and then this other high high percentage 
91% indicating that pets' emotional support and physical protection um, were, phys were significant in their ability to survive and heal. Um, you know, so that's something that we think about as someone is moving out of an abusive situation and moving into their healing. What are the supports? What are the resources that are going to enable children to be able to go through that healing process? And how important are the pets in that process? And if we can keep people together with their pets, how much you know faster or deeper or more meaningful will that healing be for them? I think the other element of this that ne needs to really be highlighted is th the the reasoning behind this. And again, I think it's it's easy from a position of privilege to sit and say, uh, particularly as a, a, a man sitting from a position of privilege, to be able to say, well, you know, why don't they just leave and figure out the pets later? Mm -hmm. And that is also, again, this is something I've read before, but is indicated in the key findings. And this this just made my heart sink into my stomach when I read these three numbers um, about yeah. the situation uh, involving the abuser and the pets. Yeah. So the link between violence against animals and violence against people is very well established. Yeah. So when, you know, when there's violence against an animal or a person in a home, everyone in that home is at risk. And we absolutely see that in domestic violence as well. Uh, so from our survey, 48% of the respondents said that they were worried that their abusive partner would harm or kill their pets. 37% uh, reported that an abusive partner had already threatened to harm or kill pets. And 29% said that their pets had already been harmed or killed. So that's a, that's a high, those are high percentages of the people who are calling in. Um, and, you know, the way it's sometimes described as pets may be uh, quote unquote soft targets um, or ways that in the same way that unfortunately like children may be seen as soft targets as well. Um, if they can't defend themselves in the same way that someone who is a full-size adult may be able to. Um, and so, and then of, of course it's um, exploiting that emotional connection. So pets are used as targets um, because abusers know how important they are to the survivors. Um, and they know that it's uh, you know, why don't they leave and figure it out later? They know that it's that, that coercive tool to say, if you do leave, I'll kill the pet. And so yeah. knowing that, um, you know, leaving without the pet isn't, isn't an option for, for everyone to be able to stay safe. Uh, and as part of that too, we've, uh, it is identified that knowledge that there are options uh, in terms of uh, getting out with pets, uh, while it is very limited still, uh, and that certainly mm -hmm. has been my experience in Canada when I've looked into this, it, it is still very limited, but there are options now. Uh, but the, the stats suggest that most folks don't know that that's a thing. Yeah, so our survey showed that about 72% of respondents were not aware that some domestic violence shelters accept pets. Um, so while it is a limited number, you know, there has been quite a lot of awareness raising or, you know, attention as someone who's like inside the field, you think like this issue is getting so much more attention and people must know. Um, but there's really a lot more work that needs to be done uh, to make sure that this information is getting to those who are experiencing violence, who are seeking shelter. Um, and, you know, really the domestic violence field for so long, uh, the answer was just no, pets are not included. Yeah in what we do, we, we don't have the capacity for that. And so I think people, even when they're asked if they have pets, I think a lot of times um, someone may think that the, the correct answer to that question, the answer that will help them access shelter, access services is to say no. 
and to figure out the pets separately from the safety planning that they're doing with, you know, for the uh, humans in the situation. And so a lot of the work that we do is really trying to spread uh, awareness and knowledge amongst DV service advocates and providers um, for how they're asking questions about pets. And even if there isn't co-sheltering or co-living available in their community, are there or organizations that can provide things like food that would be able to help with transportation to get an animal to a family member's house um, that may be able to do very short boarding or foster care? Um, how, you know, even if it's not you know, co-living and pets are coming into shelter like we offer with pals, um, how can you get services for people and their pets in this moment of crisis? And the respondents have indicated, and again, this is I think, well-documented through other work, too. 50% of respondents would not consider shelter for themselves if they could not take their pets with them. So that is half of the people in this situation, half. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, for a lot of people who love animals and have pets and love their pets, you know, that that also seems like a an obvious kind of statistic. But I think for, you know, it's, it's, it's in that same way that it's, it's following the survivor's lead. And in that moment, what are they telling us is important. We also have some people who may make that, you know, 50% of those said they, they would leave their pets behind. And so those people are also making the decision that, you know, their, their personal safety, or they're not going to be able to help their pets or their children um, if they are not, if they're no, if they're not out of that situation. And so really, um, centering the survivor's needs and honoring the decisions that people make, um, you know, either way. Yeah. I think that's, that must be a difficult thing to communicate publicly is the not judging folks in that situation. And that's something that comes up sometimes in animal welfare circles. And we have to have that conversation about, look, we, we don't know the situation and you have to do the best you can in the moments, um, and not judge yeah. folks who have to make that choice. It's a, it is a god-awful choice that anyone would ever have to make at all. Um, and it, it, we should not judge them. And I, I love the fact that this entire thing is based on um, what the individuals are saying they need yeah. as opposed to what we think they should need. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously the statistics around animals being at risk and wanting to help animals and also help people, like those are, they're powerful and they, you know, speak to a need for services for animals, but also, you know, we're, we're really trying to center the human experience. And so saying like, this is an animal welfare issue, but this is, it's also, you know, it's about the human, the human survivors um, and recognizing them as full humans that have a variety of needs. And for those who have pets, one of their needs is they need help with their pets. And so how can we just raise an awareness, raise the availability of, sort of services and get resources out into communities uh, to, for them to be able to better respond to survivors? Absolutely. Um, and there's a couple of elements in the the full report I wanted to go over sure. uh, uh, briefly because I, I think they're of uh, note and interest. One of them was integrating pets into shelter environment by including services for animals at all shelter locations. This sounds, again, it's one of those situations where I can very easily sit in my uh, chair from very far away and say, well, you know, shelters aren't equipped to do that. Or on the flip side, yeah, why aren't shelters doing that? Um, what are the challenges on the shelter side to accommodating or, or finding solutions? Um, because I imagine there are also people who are going to be afraid of dogs yeah, or allergic to cats yeah. or whatever. Yeah. 
and space issues, landlord issues, all of that. Yeah, so domestic violence shelter, uh, as you may imagine, is a complex and challenging environment. You have people who are leaving um, very difficult situations, um, recovering from trauma, uh, lots of children in the space. So we, our shelter is actually 80% children. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a dynamic environment. And I think for a lot of shelter providers, um, they would say it's a very under-resourced, uh, environment also, and from a staffing and, uh, finances perspective. And so, um, I think a, a challenge for a lot of DV service providers has been just this fear of taking on a whole other element of a person's needs um, and not feeling like they are equipped to do so or they have the capacity to do so. Um, and then just like that additional complicate, adding that additional complexity to the space. So, you know, it's already a pretty complex um, environment to navigate. Uh, and so that's why, you know, we're really trying like our program, we have co-living. Um, so we actually were in New York city. Um, we provide services to over 1200 survivors, um, every day. Uh, so we have very large apartment style, apartment building style shelters. And so that means that most of our families are in their own individual apartments. And so then being able to bring their pets in, um, is pretty straightforward, uh, cause the animal is living with them in the apartment. And so not every shelter in cities, in you know smaller cities, in more suburban or rural areas, shelters look very different. So I said we have over 1,200 beds. There are a lot of shelters across um, Canada, across the U.S. that have six beds. Um, so these are like very, yep. very different in size and scope of work and scope of number of people served. And so um, I think just acknowledging that it doesn't have to look the same for every DV provider. It doesn't have to be animals have come into the shelter environment and they live together. Um, there could be on-site kenneling. There could be partnerships with animal welfare organizations that provide short-term boarding or short-term foster care. Um, that yep. there are a lot of different ways that this can look and that community, kind of that community assessment and community partnership is such an important part of figuring out what works for our community. So for New York, where the scope is just so large and the number of clients being served every night is, you know, the, the supply still does not match the demand of the number of people who need shelter and need shelter with their pets. But for us, you know, it would be impossible for us to do a foster care program. Yeah, there's uh, too many animals, just the sheer too number. Too many of animals, them. yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and then depending on like what the what these kind of, I don't know, like status of the animal shelter is in your community. Mm -hmm. Are they still really focused on like reducing population and, you know, reducing euthanasia and really getting animals adopted or, you know, have they, are they doing a little more creative stuff? Are they doing more community programs? Yeah. Are they, do they have an active foster program? Is this something, do they have a lot of foster providers? Is this something that they could incorporate into their, um, into their services? And so it's really just doing making the connections um, between animal welfare and domestic violence, especially, and then, you know, having honest conversations about what feels possible and how, and just start somewhere. So like we also started only in one of our shelter buildings, only taking cats because we were like, this is where we can start. Um, and now we're at seven different buildings and we take cats, dogs, all small animals of all types people can have multiple pets you know it, yeah. and and we have dedicated staff so as we've grown we've been able to say we can do a lot more 
but we, we recognize that when we started, we couldn't, and that that's probably where a lot of providers are. And so even just being able to ask the question about people's pets and knowing about the resources that are available to them, you know, beyond domestic violence in the community is a beneficial place to start. And for folks uh, who are curious about the scope of those animals, the report has a fun infographic. Uh, three, it's, a, it's a weird Christmas song, too. Uh, three bearded dragons, 168 cats, 11 fish, four hamsters, 26 turtles, five birds, 174 dogs, six guinea pigs, and three rabbits. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an impressive menagerie of domestic animals. I know the turtles were surprising to me at first, but yeah, there's a surprising number of turtles um in new york city but yeah mostly cats and dogs but we do um accept any pets that people are looking to bring um we do we accept three pets at the moment um but we really like make the decision based on the size of the unit and the number of individuals in it and um just to make sure that everyone can be safe and happy uh one of the uh, elements in this as well is you look at um, support to help people and animals heal, especially those impacted by violence, by providing education and resources. And there's a community element of this I'd like to get to next. In this regard, though, you had mentioned that you, uh, you're in the fortunate situation to be able to bring in some animal helpers, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, in various capacities. What does this support look like? What is it that URI can do that other organizations could also learn from um, in terms of helping people and animals heal and potentially healing together? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're lucky we're in New York City, so there's a lot of organizations here and resources available. But, you know, when we started, we found an animal welfare partner because we were human services providers. We were not experts in animals in any way. And so really recognizing that we needed someone to help us think through the policies, think through what the program is going to look like in our spaces, think through what the physical spaces would look like, um, what uh, supplies would we need to provide, what assessments would we need to potentially do with animals. Um, and really, I think, like, help us form, um, yeah, just the, the basic structure of what a pet program could look like. And so I think that's a, an important initial relationship to start is for domestic violence providers to even just introduce themselves to the animal welfare community. So we have, um, on our team, we have, now we have staff who have an intersection, who work at the intersection of DV and animal welfare. So have experience in both, uh, environments, but most people who work in DV don't have a lot of experience with animals. And so even just basic, you know, education about basic dog behavior or visiting an animal shelter and like seeing, how, you know, yes, you have a lot of animals in this space, but they're being cared for safely and well and um, seeing how people are interacting with animals. Because if you don't have that experience, you may come more from a place of fear or, you know, thinking that it's going to disrupt the environment or bring um, bring negative things into the environment. Um, so that just building that relationship and learning um, from animal welfare, I think, is a really interesting place to start we also you know as as people who love animals like on our team like we I think we take the human animal bond and understanding of the human animal bond for granted and so you know working with humane education groups um bringing them in to like talk with children but also then the adults are there and like learning from that humane education you know we have when we do internal training we have staff members who say 
I never realized that animals and human like that they mean that much to people just like I I've never had pets this wasn't a thing in my family this wasn't an experience that I had and I I didn't know that and so I think um you know if there if there are people within an organization you know if that you know may not be a decision maker but you're a person who loves animals or if you are a decision maker just like bringing it to your leadership bringing it to Mm -hmm. people to say like it doesn't necessarily need mean to be i want to do co-sheltering but it could be i want to try to bring therapy animal teams in i'd like to have a humane education you know like could we have humane education um and there's tons of research out there that shows the benefit that these programs have uh for both adults and children to really just start teaching and learning about the impact that animals have on our lives, um, especially for people who've experienced um, trauma and the importance of, you know, being able to have those connections and maintain those connections. Yeah. It's um, one of those things, you know, you can armchair psychiatrist or psychologist, that one, and just healing from any kind of trauma Mm -hmm. with the, the support of a beloved domestic animal. I've got my, you, you would have heard her chewing on her bone earlier when we were talking and that's, that's going to make it into the podcast. Don't worry. Um, (laughs) uh, my JJ, like having her around in my life makes such a difference. And, um, growing up without pets other than, you know, the, the very quickly disappearing ones. Um, it, it is something certainly that I can imagine, all of the benefits of having that experience and particularly when it's someone's, you know, it's the family member uh, and that safety. uh, We see the benefits of that, you know, uh, dog guides up here. um, They've done some studies on autism support Mm -hmm. dogs and the, the range of benefits that comes uh, between mental health and animal welfare and having connection with animals. So it it certainly makes sense to be exploring that, Mm -hmm. um, Within this, and that builds into this uh, community response model. Building a movement is the name of the chapter in the report. Uh, by the way, if you are interested in the subject matter, the report is linked in the show notes, folks, and I recommend checking it out. It's very well put together. Uh, as I said, it is heartbreaking, but it is stuff that we all need to know and we all need to be a part of the solution. So I do recommend checking that out. Um, and the community response model, I thought that's an interesting idea in that you're no longer just also looking at your shelter. You're no longer looking at, this is what we're doing, but it's starting to look at how you connect, as you said, with the animal welfare community, Mm -hmm. but then also educating everybody about everything, it almost (laughs) feels like. So so the animal welfare folks can learn a bit about domestic Mm -hmm. violence uh, work, and on your side, you learn a bit more about the animal welfare work, and I imagine that can then also expand out to other ancillary uh, or adjacent social services. Yeah, I, I think um, so, if, if people have not otherwise heard of the National Link Coalition, um, I, I believe, I don't know if they have any presence in Canada, um, but it is a coalition based in the U.S. that is really, um, you know, acknowledging that when there's violence in the home, everyone is at risk. Uh, and this mm-hmm. kind of idea of like building up cross-reporting, building up like, uh, you know, being able as a domestic violence provider, if you or advocate, if you hear about pets or feel like animals are at risk, like uh, being able to connect with animal welfare. Um, and so what we're really trying to do as a DV service provider is to speak to other DV service providers and say that complicated environment, this complex endeavor of um, helping survivors of sheltering survivors and families we know it. We speak that language. We've been doing it. We we know how hard it is. Um, we've 
had this program for eight years, uh, let us teach you from our experience, not say, you know, you need to do exactly what we do, but, you know, have you asked all the questions, all the, the concerns, the fears, the worries that you and your staff had? All of our, our staff has had those as well. We've heard every question. So every, everything that you're worried about, we can res- you know, help you figure out how to respond to um, those worries on an individual basis. Um, and you know, having both the animal welfare and domestic violence background, I think we can we speak both languages well. That's kind of how I describe it. And so I think it really is important in recognizing that um, you know, because DV is such a widespread issue, people who are experiencing domestic violence or abuse victims, um, you know, they may not be asking, they may be at an animal shelter looking to relinquish their pets. And they're saying that the reason they're there is housing is because they need to, but because they have to leave their housing because they're going into shelter. And so how do we make that the animal welfare environment more, um, you know, not make people who work in animal welfare also domestic violence advocates, but make that a safe environment where people know or are aware that if they are safe to disclose that information, that they will then have access to domestic violence resources, um, that the animal welfare organization can make those referrals and that um, there may be different policies or programs in place to assist them with their animals. Um, And so really, you know, wanting to share this really robust, (laughs) long experience that we've had in doing this um, and realizing that, you know, even if we expanded and we're able to serve every person in New York City. Like there's still a whole country, a whole world out there of survivors who need help. And so how can we, um, you know, share our experience as DV service providers to help, uh, you know, other DV service providers, you know, feel like they can tackle this in their own communities and make it as um, possible for them as we can. Um, yeah, it's, it's, Finding all of these connections is, is uh, so important. And I just looked it up while we were chatting. Nationallinkcoalition.org is the American one. And interestingly, it has a link down the left side to every one of the states on how do I report suspected abuse mm-hmm. and a lot of other great resources. Canada does have one, a Canadian Violence Links um, Coalition, which appears to be organized by Humane Canada, which is a national uh, wildlife, or sorry, a national animal organization that f- specifically focuses on shelters, uh, animal shelters. So there, there are some workshops, conferences, and links at Humane Canada uh, for folks up here um, who want to take a look. Again, I'm just going to go back to this report because it's so well done. It asks all of the questions I have next. Uh, so what's needed next? Um, you know, that's I think that's the ultimate question of it. You, you now have this broad data set uh, that really, you know, in addition to what we already had on the books about this, it really gives more depth to the situation and the complexities of it. Um, you've got some resources in place that are outstanding. You, you, you are all extraordinarily dedicated individuals. Um, so how do you go for, how do you go forward from here and what is necessary either from the public, the government or community partners, uh, to make this more successful and more available in a widespread Yeah. Manner? So I think we've touched on a lot of these things, but I also appreciate that you said the, the public government, um, private, because I, I do think that this is, uh, an issue that needs a response from all of those, uh, entities. Um, and really, you know, because we need people to have an awareness and knowledge 
of the issue. Um, so this, this need for shelter, that's a huge one is continuing to, um, you know, put these statistics out of people are not going to leave their, an abusive situation uh, if they're not able to bring their pets and that importance of having their pets with them. And so, but then we need, we need funders, we need government, we need private uh, public partnerships, we need uh, more resources for the service providers who are trying to work for survivors that are trying to provide um, that access to safety are able to do so in a way that is uh, fiscally possible. Um, I think we need to recognize uh, that there's more training needed for people who are at the crisis uh, Point. Um, so people who are mm -hmm. working as hotline advocates, um, this also reflects on people who may be working in animal welfare admissions or people who are working at DV resource centers, um, just knowledge about the intersection of domestic violence and pet ownership, um, not only the risk of violence towards pets, but also the importance of pets in people's lives and what, um, what a difference, like having programs that factor in um, both the humans and the animals involved can make in people's lives. Absolutely. And I think one of the greatest flaws in our thinking into society right now is that help is available and people just need to ask, but we mm -hmm. need to do a hell of a job letting them know that help is available still. Yes, um, absolutely. And, and I think, um, yeah, and especially with domestic violence, like you acknowledged at points in this conversation is, you know, you, if you most people have some version of personal experience, but if you don't, or even if you do, it's a very sensitive topic uh, and yeah. people are not, um, yeah, disclosure is hard. It's really hard for people to disclose, especially, you know, depending on what point in their healing process they are in. And so there's a lot of sensitivity, a lot of, um, you know, not, not directly asking, but sort of making yourself known as a safe space yeah. um, for people and as a space where people can get help um, and where they won't be judged for making a decision to not leave or to, you know, whatever decision they may make, um, but really creating that safety. So it's not only, you know, letting people know that there's a hotline to call, but letting them know that there's a hotline where they're going to get um, compassionate trauma-informed care uh, that feels you know, feels responsive to their needs and to, to them as individuals. Absolutely. And there's uh, one of the other little things in here I wanted to, to call out because I think it's important. And this actually came up in a, uh, a couple of reports I've read of uh, surveys of one of them was regarding animal advocates. And one of them was, I, I don't remember what the basis of it was. Um, but in the survey, I'll see if I can find the actual statement uh, in here somewhere as a sidebar, I believe. Uh, it was speaking, though, to the need to have a better understanding of how this all impacts vulnerable populations, inclusive of LGBTQ mm -hmm. plus communities and people who identify in one of those. And it's it's even though we've got all of this knowledge, there's still more we have to learn. Yeah. There's still more we have to do to try and solve this and help and mitigate and all of that. I think, you know, that's uh, uh, the domestic violence movement, uh, you know, in the sixties and seventies, like, you know, it, it, domestic violence didn't exist or, you know, we, we thought it, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't a thing that existed. And so, you know, it really started as the, the battered women's movement as a, you know, to help women and then women and their children who are at risk. And then 
you know, as our understanding of the issue and as our, you know, we've evolved as a society and also and realized that, the, you know, this isn't only impacting women, this isn't only impacting children. Um, we, everyone is welcome in our shelters. So they're, you know, men, women, um, trans, we accept everyone, we accept people who don't have children. That's another part of this is, you know, so historically a lot of shelter has been for families or for people with children. And so really trying to um, expand the the population of people that we're serving. Um, and then, you know, recognizing the, the intersections between, you know, poverty, homelessness, um, and, and under, and seeing how that plays into people's needs, um, and being, and trying to do the best we can to address those needs at the same time that we're also like working to address the domestic violence and caring for the pets. So it is, uh, it is a large issue that our understanding of continues to evolve. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's important to us as an agency to be like inclusive and welcoming and to recognize that, um, you know, there are certain populations that are more impacted by domestic violence, um, black communities and communities of color, black women in particular, like this, it's a, it's a, I don't have the statistics right in front of me, but the numbers are pretty astounding. Um, and also the number of people in LGBTQ relationships who've experienced um, abuse, sexual assault is, is very high. And so what additional resources do we have for those communities um, beyond, you know, beyond shelter um, and, and including their animals, you know, um, and how do we, yeah, how do we really try to be inclusive and make a difference in everybody's lives? To read the full URI PALS report, visit urinyc.org or visit the links in this week's show notes. I want to extend my thanks to Danielle for joining the show for this interview and everyone at Urban Resource Institute for their ongoing work. This episode was difficult to research, record, and present. I hope I have done it justice. If there are ways the introductions or links can be improved to best serve the audience, please reach out directly to me at michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, at thefurbearers.com or by visiting defenderradio.com, and I will do my best to update it. I also want to thank all of you for listening and for your ongoing empathy and compassion. We can make this world a safer, kinder place, and it starts with understanding. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio.